Well, good morning and welcome again to First Church. I like uh, being a part of this one family spread across many rooms, one church, many locations. And so whether you're at North Garnett or Stone Canyon, Verdigris Online, wherever you are, thanks for being a part of what God is doing. And as Jared said, uh, my name is Michael DeFazio and I'm a professor at Ozark Christian College. He left out the fact that we went to school together because we probably have embarrassing stories about each other. So we'll just sort of both leave those unstated uh, for maybe another time at the very least. Uh, Ozark, if you don't know, is a college up in Joplin, Missouri, a Bible college where we train people for Christian service. And so you have sent us, many of your young folks through the years have a number of students from this church with us right now, and we are training them up, and we are excited to send them off, whether it's back here to this community or elsewhere around the world to fulfill their kingdom calling. That's what we do, and I'm excited about what you do, and I'm excited to be here together with you on this particular morning. Uh, I actually grew up in Tulsa, uh, so the Tulsa area is something I'm familiar with, and anytime I get to be back in the area, it's not only cool to see old sites, but also to hopefully give something back to the area of churches that, that really is a big part of how I became who I am in Jesus and getting to know him and all those various things. So glad to be here today um, and also glad to be talking about this theme of contrast that's this series you guys are in. I, I, I just, as soon as I saw this, I love the idea of going with this concept of contrast because I'm pretty convinced that it's going to be a really important thing for us if we're going to maintain faithfulness to Jesus in our world to be able to be different to be able to look around at those around us and recognize like, ah, one of these things is not like the other, and that's okay, for us anyway, because we believe that what we're believing in is the truth. And as we look out at a world that's less and less supportive of, and at times more and more hostile to the nature of our faith, it's going to be necessary for us to be able to be a contrast to those who are around us. I'm reminded of, I'm actually reminded of one of the cheesiest preacher stories I've ever heard, but I'm a guest preacher, so I might as well share it. Um, the attitude that we need reminds me of a story I once heard about a little girl in third grade. Her name was Chrissy, and she was in a third grade classroom, and her teacher was talking on and on about how she, uh, the teacher, was part of Cubs Nation. She was a Chicago Cubs fan. If you're in the room, don't cheer. We don't want to know. So she's a Cubs fan, and she's going on and on about how much she loves the Chicago Cubs and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, and then at a certain point, she asks the class, how many of y'all are part of Cubs Nation? And pretty much the whole class raises their hand. I mean, they're in third grade. They don't really know what she's talking about. They just want the teacher to like them. So they all throw their hands up, except for Chrissy. Little girl sitting in the middle of the classroom keeps her hand down. And the teacher says, Chrissy, why didn't you raise your hand? And Chrissy said, well, because I'm a proud fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. And she beat her chest twice and pointed to the sky. You know what I mean? And the teacher said, well, um, well um, like, why are you a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals? Which is a little bit strange. Just let it go, you know. But why are you a fan of the Cardinals? And Chrissy said, well, my mom's a fan of the Cardinals. And my dad's a fan of the Cardinals. So I'm a fan of the Cardinals. And at this point, any sense of professionalism would have led this teacher to just back off, let it go, and move on. But for some reason, this got under her skin. So the teacher, I'm not joking, the teacher says to this little girl, well, what if your mom was a moron and your dad was a moron? What would that make you? Yeah, but little Chrissy wasn't phased. She answered the question. That would make me part of Cubs Nation. <laughs> So I am a Cardinals fan, but mainly I tell that joke because I think it illustrates maybe a little bit less snark, but it illustrates something of what we're going to need, this ability to look around us and say, I know all y'all are saying one thing and I'm saying another and you think I'm backwards and crazy, but I actually believe that what I'm saying is true, contrast. I also love the pairing of contrast with wisdom. I think that this also is a wise decision as we think about how to navigate our world. If there's one thing our world lacks, it's not information. But has all this access to information made us wise? 
I think you'd be hard-pressed to find even a non-believing public intellectual who would stand up and say that the information age has unquestionably made us all better at life. And that's what wisdom is, the skill of living. And for us, wisdom we recognize is not just the skill of living in a general sense, but it's the ability to bring all of the details of our lives underneath God's rule and to live them in such a way that fits His design. And that brings us to the book of Proverbs. I think your Bibles are out, so go ahead and open them up if they're not already open to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book about wisdom, a book of timeless wisdom that is always timely, a book that's just as relevant to us in 27 AD as it was in about 1070 BC whenever it was actually written. Like This is a book that continues to speak to us. I remember as a young guy, one of the things I was encouraged to do with the Bible was to uh, read Proverbs once a month, just about 30 chapters for just about 30 days. Seems like a wise practice. But we're not going to read the whole book right now. We're going to read a portion from chapter 12. So if you're not there, open up to Proverbs chapter 12. And I want to read together from verse 17 through 22. And we're going to notice that this is just a little section of teaching here about telling the truth. So here's our text for the day. Proverbs 12, 17 through 22. A truthful witness gives honest testimony, but a false witness tells lies. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. There is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil, but joy for those who promote peace. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. And the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. That's our text. From start to finish, you can see the theme is telling the truth. As we talk about contrast today, we're talking about the specific contrast between honesty and dishonesty, between telling the truth and not telling the truth. That's how it starts. A truthful witness gives honest testimony, but a false witness tells lies. Honesty is not really a hard thing to talk about. At least it's not the kind of thing, like nobody's walking in here going, you know what, I think, I think we should probably all lie to each other. (laughs) Like, that's a good recipe for life. Nobody thinks that. We've got all sorts of quotes from throughout history about honesty. A couple that I found this week. Here's one from Thomas Jefferson. He says, honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment. Sorry, TJ. It's actually the 12th. But nonetheless, like you get the point. It's there. Honesty, wisdom, yes. Here's another one from an ancient philosopher, Sophocles. He says, better to fail with honor than succeed with fraud. We tell our kids this. Hey, it's better not to cheat even if you lose than it is to cheat and win the game. Here's another one you probably heard. This is short one. Honesty is the best policy. How many of y'all heard this before? How many of you said this before? Yeah, I couldn't find who exactly said this first. I researched this. It's either William Shakespeare or Benjamin Franklin or Oprah or your grandmother. Like, it's one of those four. And probably all of them at a certain point. One more from our boy Bob Dylan says, To live outside the law, you must be honest. I'm not even sure what that means, to be honest with you, but I do think it illustrates the fact that no matter where you are or where you find yourself in society, honesty tends to be something that we value. Honesty tends to be something that we all nod and say, yeah, like we should probably tell the truth. Oh, no, also the hard text ends. I mean, this is a big deal. Don't miss the strong language in the last verse. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. This is, this is strong language. And it's echoed in other places in the scriptures, earlier in Proverbs, read a couple of these, earlier in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension among brothers. 
So out of the seven things that God absolutely hates, two of them have to do with not telling the truth. I think that matters. This is stated for us a bit more concisely in Psalm 5, 6. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. You find similar emphasis on truth-telling in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, here's some verses from the Apostle Paul instructing the church on how to live. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Then he goes to a specific teaching. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And jumping to the very end, notice how the story ends. Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. He who comes will overcomes will inherit all this. Talking about the glories of the world to come. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Yeah, yeah, this is a big deal to God. This is no light matter to God, and so what we talk about when we talk about truth-telling should probably be talked about with a certain amount of reverence, given how God speaks of it in His Word. The main idea today is, is really, it's really like almost embarrassingly simple. The main idea today is very simple, and it's, it is just that God says life works best when we tell the truth. Like this is the one day when maybe you're talking to your kids or your grandkids later on and saying, what'd you learn in church today? And your kids actually have a more complicated main idea than you did, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that's what this text is saying. God says life works best when we tell the truth. So far as I can tell, Solomon's goal in writing this text in Proverbs, the main text we're looking at, Proverbs chapter 12, I think what Solomon wants us to do is he wants to push us to think about, just stop and consider the benefits of an honest life, of telling the truth. The text is not particularly complex. It's not really all that complicated. We see four benefits in this text brought by honesty. Let me just walk through them with you. The first thing we see is that honesty brings healing. Honesty brings healing, putting things back together again as opposed to pulling them apart. Verse 18, chapter 12, verse 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. An honest life is a healing life. To tell the truth is to heal. To tell untruths is to destroy. We don't have to search hard for an example of this, not today. I'm not sure if you heard, but Hugh Hefner died just in the past couple of weeks. And if you don't know who that is, I mean, props to you, I suppose. But as the creator of Playboy, he did as much as any other individual to usher in the age of pornography. Enough said, perhaps, but it's been interesting to watch the media respond to this because there's been all sorts of statements out there about his legacy. He's been praised as a, a paragon of progress and an ally of feminism. And I'm reading this going, what? Are we, are we talking about the same person? It's nothing baffling to see a person who is responsible for ushering in like bunches of pornography, praised as someone who represents progress, praised as someone who somehow cares about women and wants to move them forward in our world. I mean, it's nothing short of baffling to see this kind of blindness. And of course, the real legacy of Hugh Hefner will be that he aided the destruction of women by selling some of the most deeply believed lies of the last 100 years. Lies like this one, that women are designed as objects for men to be exploited for sexual pleasure and financial gain. Lies like this one, that cheap sexual gratification can replace God's, God's own gifted desire for mutual sexual intimacy. And maybe this is a bad example because it's unlikely any of you have the means or the interest of opening up a new mansion. 
I mean, maybe this is one of those times when it's really easy to point the finger at somebody out there. I don't know. I think it is a good example of this particular truth, but maybe we need to stay closer to home. Have you ever walked into a small group setting or maybe just even been part of a conversation where you could tell that somebody was pretending to be better than they really are? Somebody was putting on the mask. Somebody had their church face on and they were just sort of acting like everything was okay. Let me ask you, did this make you like more or less likely to open up about your own junk, about the stuff in your own life that probably needs to be exposed and dealt with? And there you have it. Healing could have happened. Actually, these places are designed for healing to happen. Our conversations and our gatherings are designed for places where we, to be places where we can come and open up about what's going on in our lives in such a way that the Holy Spirit puts us back together again. But when we wear the mask, when we're dishonest, we stop that process from taking place. Healing sometimes doesn't happen because people aren't willing to tell the truth. I think that's what you see in the Ephesians text that we read just a second ago. Paul is talking to people like you and I about how to be followers of Jesus, how to be communities of faith. And he lays out this basic pattern of put off the old and put on the new, get rid of the old life, get the new. And the first test case, he goes to first example of what this looks like in practice, telling the truth. Honesty instead of dishonesty. So do you want a life that, that builds up community and brings healing power in every direction? Tell the truth. Second thing we see honesty brings in this text is stability. Honesty, first of all, brings healing. Next thing we see is that honesty brings stability. Let me read verse 19 again. He says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Truthful lips endure, ever say forever. Everybody say forever. Forever. Stability. But a lying tongue lasts only a moment. An honest life is a stable life. Now, the easiest way to see this, the easiest way to see how obvious it is that honesty is necessary for, for stability is to think about raising a child. It would be difficult to think about the amount of true things we say to children. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you touch that, it will burn your hand. If you, if you talk that way to people, like, no one will want to be your friend, you know? If you jump off of that ledge, then you will hurt yourself. We tell our kids the truth. We do it all the time. I remember not too long ago, actually it was a couple years ago now, my daughter, when she was younger, she was in children's church, and uh, she, she used to love, she still does love, to wear these cute little dresses, you know, so she's got this dress on, and she's in kids' church, she's probably three, four years old at the time, and, um, and she's walking around, and this, this, one of the helpers, this college student, one of the helpers said to her, Claire, that's such a, that's such a pretty dress. And Claire, you know, she's very shy, she said yes, but she knew it was, so she said, yes, it is. <laughs> and then she said, but we shouldn't talk about our pretty dresses, and puts her head down. Because some people don't have pretty dresses, like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these. <laughs> yeah, you've been there, right? Where you're like, babe, you, you can't say that to people, you know. Here's my son, though. For him, it's not so much making fun of other people's clothing. Carson, remember one day, it was, wasn't actually too long ago, I picked my boy up. My daughter's name is Claire. My son's name is Carson. Pick him up from church, and he's like, I said, buddy, how'd church go? He says, it's good. We learned about Jesus. I didn't punch any of my friends. <laughs> That's good, buddy. You know what I mean? Like, well done, man. Like, we are making progress in life. This is a good thing. But we tell our kids the truth because we recognize that if we told them the opposite, we wouldn't just be bad parents in a general sense, we would be setting them up for an unstable life. Sure, you can touch the red fiery burner, it's gonna be fine. Yeah, you can say whatever you want to people. Hey, here's a great thing to do with your friends, punch them in the face. Like, we don't tell them that because we recognize that as a person's view of the world is being formed, it's really pretty important that we tell them the truth. 
that we lay it out for them, even some uncomfortable truths. We tell them these things because this is the only recipe for stability. If you've ever lied, you probably get this. I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis or Mark Twain who said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Kind of a strange statement, but you understand what he's saying. Saying that if you've ever, like if you lie, if you tell the truth, then this, well, next time it comes up, you tell the truth and you're fine. If you lie, you gotta remember the way you lied so that later on you can lie again to keep that cover up going. And then you have to lie again like in a way that is consistent with your previous lies just to make sure that nobody finds you out. It's exhausting. This is what we call spinning a web of lies. And there's a reason why we talk in these ways because we recognize that it's not only exhausting, it's unstable. One accidental slip, one little moment of truth exposure, and it comes undone, falls apart. But I want you to notice something about this stability point. In this text, Solomon isn't just, isn't only talking about stability right now. I think he's also talking about stability forever, stability into eternity. He says the one who tells the truth endures forever. That's that key word there. And the text that we read from Revelation agrees. You look at this scene at the very last days when all of those who believe in Jesus receive these great rewards, and then there's a group of folks who are on the outside, and the last one on the list, and you put it last on the list to emphasize it, is all the liars. Why, when it comes to the last dividing line, are liars on the outside? Why bring up this particular point? Is it the case that, that now God finally demands that we earn our way into heaven, at the very least, by telling the truth? No, not at all. Because it's, it's more because habitual lying reveals a dark heart that doesn't actually trust in God. And we're going to come back to trust a little bit later. For now, the question is, do you want to be stable? Do you want a life where you feel like your soul is standing on solid ground both now and into the future? Do you want a life that endures forever? Tell the truth. Two more in here, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly because, again, this text is pretty clear and also there's some overlap. Third thing I think we see is that honesty brings happiness. Next verse is uh, verse 20. There is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil, but joy for those who promote peace. An honest life is a happy life. Now, I don't know how y'all do it here, but I know that growing up, for me, growing up in the church, like you didn't necessarily hear happiness a lot. It seems like Christians were hesitant to talk about happiness, and, and I understand why. Because the word happy kind of tends to mean, or at least we take it to mean, you know, I feel good because of what's happening. It's, it's uh, the circumstances are making me happy. And we believe in joy, which is deeper. And, and absolutely, like touche, I get it. I'm grateful for this lesson that I learned. I think that this is important that we think about such things. But I also notice that both the Old Testament and the New Testament use words in their language for happiness. And they present this as a benefit that will come to us from living the kind of life that God has made available to us in Christ. Now, it's not a shallow happiness. It's not a happiness where I just feel happy all the time. It's not a happiness where I get everything that I want. It's not a happiness where everything that I could ever ask for is absolutely going to be right in front of my face and no hard things are ever going to happen to me. That's not what it's talking about. But it does mean that it is claiming and it is saying, and this text does, I think, present the fact that in the long run, the most reliable path to happiness is lining up our lives in ways that are consistent with what God has revealed to be true about himself. And in this case, that means telling the truth. An honest life is a happy life. Fourth thing we see is that honesty brings security. Here's the last one. Honesty brings security. Verse 21. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. So you've got this righteous, wicked contrast in here, and it's pointing to the honest, dishonest contrast in the text as a whole. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. 
The righteous can be secure because bad things, generally speaking, aren't going to happen to them as much. An honest life is a secure life. Again, this is not saying that nothing ever bad is going to take place, but in the long run, you are secure now and forevermore. And again, this is easy. You ever walk into a room full of people that you know you're lying to? You don't exactly feel safe in that situation. You don't exactly feel secure. You aren't exactly at peace and rest because you know you got to keep this going. So the question, again, that this text presents to us today and every day is fairly simple. Do you want to be a person who brings healing rather than destruction, whose life is stable and who walks happily with a strong sense of being secure? Wonderful. Tell the truth. Which is all fine and good, but it's the kind of thing you hear in a sermon, and then you say, nice message, preacher, on the way out the door, and you just sort of go on. Okay. Fine, but the question is, and when don't ask this question, I do believe that we kind of been wasting our time. Will you be a person who tells the truth? Few people admit to being liars. We all know that there are liars in the world, but when we think of them, we think of the big ones. We think of politicians like Nixon and whichever other presidents you don't like, you know. We think of, uh, you know, public crooks like Bernie, Bernie Madoff, or we think about athletes like Ryan Lochte or Alex Rodriguez, like whoever it is, and don't, I'll spare you all the bad lawyer jokes that you can find on the internet if you look them up. Like, there's all sorts of other liars out there, but liar? Like, you can't be talking about me. I'm not a liar. I heard one time about this rancher who, who asked his veterinarian, he called his vet, and he said, I got a little bit of a problem. I got a horse who walks normally sometimes and limps sometimes. What should I do? And the vet was like, oh, that's simple. Next time he's walking normal, sell him. <laughs> and we hear this and we think, okay, yeah, that's cute, that's fine. I would, I would never do that, you know. I mean, somebody would probably do that, but I would never do that. No, 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 I'm not a liar. And maybe you're right, like, I don't think I'm probably sitting in front of a room of a bunch of liars, but at the end of the day, like, someone lies. We know this is true. Virtually all of the research and surveys, and I looked at a bunch of different things from things like Psychology Today and National Geographic, and I tried to get a wide expanse. Generally speaking, what the surveys discover is that about 40% of people admit to lying once a day. And that's assuming, of course, that all the others are telling the truth. So like 40%, probably about half of us say, would probably lie once a day. One of the leading researchers on deceit and honesty and dishonesty is a man named Dan Ariely. He teaches at Duke University, and he wrote a book uh, called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty with the subtitle, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. And he presents all sort of interesting findings in the book, and they did various tests and experiments. And one of the things they did was they ran this experiment where they would bring in volunteers to do a, like a math quiz with 20 questions. And it was a time thing. It was like five minutes. So in five minutes, how many of these math equations could you solve? And they said, you know, we're going to give you, and they did give them a certain amount of money for however many they got right. And so what they were to do was they were to take this piece of paper and, you know, work out the math. And then after they finished it, count up the amount they got correct, and then go take the paper over to a shredder, shred the thing, come back to the room, tell them how many they got correct, and then they'd receive their money. You know, you know where this is going, probably. Like, it wasn't a shredder. This is the actual experiment, not how smart are people at math, but they didn't actually shred the sheet. They then went and got the sheet and compared it to how many answers the person said they got correct. And on average, most folks bump the number by two. Most people got on average about four of these math equations correct, and most people said on average that they solved six of them. So the reports are similar across different cultures. This isn't just like one culture. This isn't just one age group. This is something that they did pretty broadly, and they discovered, in fact, that most of us lie, but only a little. We exaggerate 
We bend the truth. We select what to share. Oh, sorry, my phone was on silent. I didn't see your call. Well, the phone was on silent, but it does this funny thing when it's on silent. It vibrates, which usually draws our attention to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, yeah, I've read that book. It's pretty interesting. What do you think about it? They say that the most common lie on college campuses is that one. Yeah, I've read that book. And I bet a buddy of mine said this last week, the most common lie in church is, I'll pray for you. Oof. How many hours do I work per week? I mean, it's hard to say. I'm pretty busy, probably like 60, 70, maybe like 100, you know. We'll go with that. Am I, am I as happy as I seem to be on Facebook? I mean, sometimes. Did we take 15 pictures just to make sure that we got the best one? Maybe, you know. Hashtag blessed. Just making sure everything's looking all right. We lie, but only a little bit. Oh, that dress looks great on you. This is sort of the classic one. And I, what I don't understand is why we haven't figured this out. Like, this is simple. Just tell a slightly different truth. Oh, you're so lovely. I hardly even see the dress. Will, it, will this work? No, no, it will not. But you can give it a shot, you know. And let's admit, too, I was talking to somebody on the way in. Let's admit that this is a complicated question. Like, the, being a truth teller doesn't mean that you just say whatever you're thinking all the time, no matter what. That's called immaturity. That's not truth telling. And some issues really are complex. You think about even in Scripture the fact that there are times when people didn't tell the truth and it seems to be something that God honored. Rahab lied about the spies. The Hebrew midwives lied about the babies. And so we recognize that there are some cases where these things are complex. But let's not use the very real presence of complex situations to hide the fact that most of the time it's actually not that complex. Most of the time it's pretty simple. Do I have any sin to confess? I mean, no, not, not, re- not that I can think of. Bury, deny, I'm never talking about that. What's interesting, though, is Ariely, for his part, finds uh, more fascinating not so much why we lie, but why we don't lie more. See, they ran this experiment, and then after a while, they started to bump up the, the, the amount of money that they would give. They actually rewarded more money for correct answers, but what they discovered was that even when they offered more money, people didn't actually lie any more than before. They still lied an average of about two more than what they got right. Why? And his theory, and it seems, it seems to make sense to me, his theory is that we want to get the rewards of lying, but we also want to feel like we're people who tell the truth. I mean, otherwise, why not just lie on all of them? Oh, I've got standards. Do you? So we pretend, and then we pretend that we don't pretend. We, we lie in little ways, and then we tell ourselves that we don't lie, or that our lives are justified, or that it's just not that big of a deal, or at the very least, we leave it unconfessed. I hear lots of confessions in my line of work. I talk to a lot of people who need to tell me about their sins so that they could get some help. Whether in the church or at the college or just informally, I hear a lot of different confessions, and I've heard a lot through the years. Only one time I have had a person come to me and say, I have a problem with lying. One time. I had a really interesting experience this last summer at Youthquake with, um, with, with the students from this church and a couple others. And may Youthquake, keep sending your kids, keep supporting them going, because it's a really rich experience and we see life change happening there. It's such a great opportunity to be part of this. I'd heard about it for years and, and got to go and it, it was great. And there was this one night, it was one of the more powerful nights of the Spirit movement that I've been a part of. And it was a night when the Spirit was convicting of sin and it was just really cool. But we were talking actually about Ephesians 4. 
And basically, we were talking through this text where the Apostle Paul, the one we read earlier, lays out how to grow. And I kind of wanted to devote about like a whole last third of the sermon, a whole last third of the message, just to going through and reading the different sins that Paul talks about. And I didn't know if this was going to work, but I invite, I told the students and the adults in the room too, I said, as we go through these issues, if this is something that you struggle with, if this is a sin that you sometimes commit and you need to get help with, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead right where you are, just stand up. And I knew it was risky because I'm asking people to expose themselves in front of everyone, and that's a little bit scary to do for anyone. And I also was looking at the list, and I'm thinking, man, the first one Paul mentions is lying. And I felt like maybe I should just switch the order around so I can throw one out that I know that we can get some struggles on. You throw sexual immorality out there with a bunch of high school boys, like you're getting a lot of guys standing up, you know what I mean? Like that's just what's going to happen. Sorry if that's, you know, hurtful, but it's true. So I'm thinking, though, no, I'm going to trust the text. I'm going to go with what this says. I'm just going to, even if no one stands up for lying, even if just one or two people stand up, I'm just going to trust that as we keep going, more people are going to be convicted by the Spirit. And we got to the point in the message, and it was time to start listening to these things out. And I said, if anybody has a problem lying, would you please stand up? And I'm not kidding, 99, if not 100% of the people in that room stood up. My first thought was, note to self, do not trust these people. <laughs> My second thought was, I think we have a problem that we're not talking about. I think we have a problem that we're not talking about. Because it doesn't feel like as big of a problem as some of those that we are talking about. I think maybe in church when we talk about honesty, there's an elephant in the room. And it's the collective stomach turning that happens when the Spirit tries to break through our justifications and our defenses to remind us that we are not immune from the call not to lie. We say things that aren't true. We don't say things that are true that we should say. And it's really kind of concerning, heartbreaking, when you consider what we just learned, that honesty brings healing, stability, happiness, and security, which means dishonesty brings chaos, pain, sadness, and fear. I don't want those things in my life, and I don't want that to be what I bring to others either. Like, who wants on their tombstone written, here lies a man who ruined our lives because he refused to tell the truth? Nobody wants that. And our lying is not only concerning, but tragic. Like, why do we lie? Well, it's not complicated. Somebody once said, we lie if honesty won't work. And others have built this out a bit. We lie, generally speaking, to protect or promote ourselves. We lie to move ourselves further. Image management. Got to make sure you look at me a certain way. Got to make sure I look a certain way to you. Got to make sure I keep up appearances. I got to protect myself. And if I tell the truth, I won't be protected. Got to look better, succeed more, avoid hardship. I don't think we're on shaky ground. I don't think we're going too far in saying that we lie because the truth might cause pain or it might upset the status quo or we lie to keep ourselves safe or because we think it's the most reliable path to get what we need. In other words, we tell lies, mostly little tiny white ones because we think that lying is the most reliable path to healing, stability, security, and happiness. And that's what you call ironic. It does strike me as wise to get a little bit specific with each other. I've really tried not to pry too much because you, know, you, you don't know me personally. I'm, I'm here this week and I won't be back next week. You, you, so I understand like there's a certain amount of like you're just, you're just sort of trying to figure out if I talk too fast for you to even care about what I'm saying, you know? And I've tried not to pry too much and I've tried to leave room for the Holy Spirit to work, but I do think it's beneficial to just pause and think about this for a second. 
Some of us have big lies. Secrets. Some of y'all have secrets. Whichever room of the family home that you're in, some of y'all have secrets and they're big ones. You've been pushing them down. I'm not going to say anything else because if this is you, you know. Others of us have, if we were brutally honest with ourselves, we have a pattern of lying that we've never actually talked about or confronted head on. It's strange how in some ways it's more socially acceptable to say I have a drinking problem than I have a lying problem. I don't know that it's any less destructive, just less obviously so. And in the same way, it's not getting any better without help. Still others, you don't lie enough to consider it to be like a problem. It's not a habit in your life that requires attention, but there may be one or two little lies that you know you've told that the Spirit doesn't want you to ignore. Maybe you've buried them so deep that you forget about them sometimes, and you're remembering about them right now. If you're remembering about them right now, that ain't, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, this is what I'm calling you to do to respond to this. I don't know where you fall on the structure. Maybe it's just not even that it's very often or that there are any particular things, but you know that your commitment to honesty is a if it works well for me commitment, not a no matter what type of commitment. But however we do this, lie, and however often we do it, at the end of the day, I think we lie because telling the truth is scary. That's what I learned this last week as I tried real hard to not need to hear my sermon. <laughs> I tried real hard to avoid any sorts of truth bending. And I noticed at times it's scary. So where do you go from here, this recognition that the Bible tells us to tell the truth? Well, you tell the truth. Yeah, but you knew that before. And for some of us, this is enough. And for some of us, our texts from Proverbs and our brief reflections on it are enough to put us or to keep us on the right path. But for others of us, not so much. Like you'll consider it and then you'll get distracted and you'll go on about the business of your life without actually needing to think about or actually practice change. One text, one sermon just isn't enough to push us over the ledge of truth-telling, given that you don't really know what to expect when you hit the ground on the other side, given that the benefits of honesty do often come on the other side of working through the pain caused by our lives. And here's where we need the first two words of our main idea. God says life works best when we tell the truth. It's a little clunky, to be honest. It would be a little bit simpler if we just said life works best when we tell the truth but that's, that's just a little too self-helpy for me. That's taken away what I consider to be the most important part of this. This book, we believe, is the Word of God. This is the Bible. This is God's opinion on things, His perspective on life. And there's the rub, isn't it? Because it faces us, it forces us to face what is always the real question when it comes to whether we pursue wisdom or stay in folly, whether we seek humility or become okay with our pride, whether we work hard or not, or whether we tell the truth. And that real question that's forced upon us by these specific ones is, do I trust God? Will I take him at his word? Can I believe that God's best for me is the best for me? What if the question, will I tell the truth, is exactly the same as the question, will I trust God? Well, can you? Will you? Do you? Can you trust a God who made everything that is and who not only made it at one point in the past but holds together the fibers of all being by the word of his eternal power? Will you trust a God whose wisdom confounds the wise even as it is revealed to children? Do you trust a God whose love leads him not only to burn in anger and wrath against sin, but to send his own second self as a substitute for our sins so that we might be restored? 
See, the question of whether you will tell the truth is the question of whether you will affirm that God knows what he's talking about and he is always to be trusted even when we can't necessarily see how things will work out. God says life works best when we tell the truth. Do we believe him? Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful for this group of Jesus followers. We are in different places, we are, we are one family. We sit under one book, or really we sit under one Lord. We sit under you, Jesus, and you speak to us through this book. So thanks, I guess, for, for something of a, of a very specific call to trust you. As we, as we move on from, from this portion of our worship, I think I wanna make two requests, Jesus. I wanna ask you to reveal to us through your spirit the different parts of our lives that need some attention. And I want to ask you to reveal to us the depth of, of the love and power of the Father that enables us to look at these things and say, I'm not going to just ignore it this time. I'm going to do what I need to do. So bless us in these ways we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.